I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. I am uh, extremely excited about this one. This one's going to be fun. I have uh, a very, very special guest, not only one of my closest friends, but a business partner who uh, heads up our private equity equity division within Firepower. I have Anthony Lipschitz. Ant, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to a good conversation as always. Yeah. So, so Ant, at this point, I usually do kind of a, a breakdown of people's backgrounds. But uh, I want to do it a little differently. I think that I want the story to come out as we start talking about it. And uh, w- where I really want to start is at the beginning. I mean, for, for people that, uh, th- that are listening to this that uh, have any clue would know that you're not from here originally and that obviously you're, you're, you're from South Africa. So why don't we just start at the beginning? I mean, uh, I know your story really well because of how close we are, but let's start at the beginning in South Africa. Maybe just talk a bit about your childhood and uh, you know the competitive nature of the, the first parts that were uh, Mr. Lipschitz. Obviously, as you noted, I grew up in, in South Africa. I grew up in Johannesburg. You know, I grew up in a, an environment where there was definitely a lot of affluence and, and a pretty showy community, I would say. And, you know, I grew up uh, with a, a single mother. My parents got divorced when I was very young. We were part of the have-nots, um, not the haves. And certainly, you know, growing up in that environment shaped a lot of my thinking, shaped a lot of my drive. And, yeah, so I guess the competitive nature was uh, kind of innate to a large degree, but uh, definitely um, nurtured as well. I love when people say chip on the shoulder like it's a bad thing. I mean, I've always used a chip on my shoulder as, as, as a real driving force for, for my competitive streak and why I want to win and why I want to beat others. How do you view that? that you know, Because you talked about the have and the have not. Do you have a conscious mindset of that chip on the shoulder or is it something that you've gotten over or something you use? I think I still have it. You know, uh, I absolutely use it. I was fortunate that I was, you know, pretty athletic. So that was a way for me to kind of express that desire to win, I guess. And, you know, it kind of leveled the playing field to some degree because either you're the fastest guy or you're not. You're winning the race or you're you're not. So having that outlet as as a kid certainly like drives you and fuels a lot of even the growth in as an adult. But uh, yeah, you know, having that that chip on your shoulder and that feeling, you know, that you've you've got to achieve, you've got to achieve is something that never leaves you for sure. So you're in South Africa. You're obviously I know you're a competitive soccer player. Let's talk about the beginning. You know, the beginning parts of of moving continents. Maybe just talk about that stage and, and what that was like and, and wh- you know, what made you make that decision. Sure. So, again, growing up, you know, I was working from, you know, the time I was 13. Uh, if I wanted to go on vacation, I would go and, you know, sell watches door to door, make the money and go on vacation with my friends. And I always had this desire to kind of pursue, 
you know, my dreams, whatever it was. And, and you know, I, I recognized that the world was was bigger than just, you know, Johannesburg, South Africa. And, and I was lucky enough to have uh, soccer as a, a skill that I leveraged to leave South Africa. And uh, the real story is I actually went as a 19-year-old to play in a tournament in Israel for South Africa in the Maccabee Games. And I was spotted by some uh, scouts there who told me, you know, you're a nice Jewish boy, you should come back to Israel and, you know, we'll look after you, you'll play some soccer, you'll go to the army, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I was, uh, I had done a year of university in South Africa. I wasn't that motivated um, to study. I was more motivated to get on the journey and start to, you know, experience the world. And uh, long story short is I ended up leaving South Africa with a backpack and some money that I took for a, a guy in South Africa to deposit in a bank in Tel Aviv. And he gave me 10% of the money as commission for doing that for him. And that's how I started my life. So, you know, there I was, a young guy in uh, in Israel trying to, you know, play soccer, you know, study a bit of Hebrew, do this, do that. And uh, eventually, I ended up um, realizing that Israel wasn't the path I wanted to to choose. I couldn't imagine you in the army. I mean, yeah. the, 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 you're, you're a natural <laughs> rule breaker. Totally. <laughs> Authority's never really been uh, no. you know, something that I, uh, <laughs> I respond to. And also, you know, on that point, coming out of South Africa, my, my year of high school was the year that they ended conscription. You know, we used to have to go to the army in South Africa. So there was no ways I was going to the army, and I was definitely not into listening to people's rules and uh, <laughs> conforming. But yeah, so here I was in Israel. You know, I'd gone there with kind of a, a different mindset. And prior to going to Israel, I had spoken to some coaches in the U.S. at uh, U.S. universities. So I had this kind of scholarship dream in my mind as well. And I realized that without education and getting a formal like a university education, things are often intimately harder than without. So I ended up leaving Israel and going through London and working, you know, crazy jobs, you know, arriving in London with a backpack and sleeping in Victoria Station, not really knowing where I was going. Um, and I ended up, you know, spending five months there doing a whole bunch of different crazy odd jobs. And, uh, I made my way to to the States, you know, five and a half, six months later. And I remember arriving in the U.S., um, having spoken to some coaches previously and had a kind of a list of names, um, not really having anything lined up. And I arrived in L.A. with a backpack and $300. And I ended up... Uh, <laughs> I hope you still shopping. have that backpack. That backpack <laughs> yeah. has some miles that on backpack's, it. That backpack's uh, gone, gone a long time ago. But I ended up uh, hitching uh, a ride up to San Francisco with a friend and uh, ended up getting getting in touch with a buddy I'd played soccer with in South Africa who was already on scholarship in the U.S. And he hooked me up with the coach and that was it. So, so you you literally had to go and prove yourself and had no way of paying for university if you weren't going to get that scholarship. No, it was it was do or die. Where does that risk tolerance come from? Like, is that and the reason I ask, I mean, I'm also South African. I, I feel like South Africans have a higher risk tolerance than most, but even that is a lot. Like, that's even more risk than I could probably tolerate. What in your upbringing was the, Was it DNA? Was it was it something else? I mean, you know, that's an incredible amount of uncertainty for a 19, 20-year-old to, to, to stomach. 
Yeah. I think it definitely goes back to my upbringing where, you know, my mom always instilled in us, you know, you can achieve whatever you want to achieve and you're great, basically, right? Um, you know, and the world is is your oyster and you can achieve whatever you want to achieve. There was always a caveat in that you had to achieve it on your own because there was no financial support. But we were brought up in an environment where there was tremendous, you know, love and emotional support. And it instilled a confidence in me. And frankly, the risk tolerance comes from one place. And that's, you know, what we talked about, the desire to prove that you can achieve. And for me, that's always fueled it in me. How much of that comes from like growing up in a single mom household? Yeah, I think it's absolutely is huge. You know, you see someone take on the role of, of mother, father, provider, you recognize that. Plus, we had, you know, work ethic. Like I said, if we wanted to go on vacation, we worked and we figured it out from an early age and, you know, and then you went on vacation. So you're in school, you're playing soccer. Did you ever think it would become professional or was that a means to an end? You know, talk about, you know, when that soccer career ended and, and the, the beginning parts of your career. And did you have to mourn, like, you know, if, like, did you have to mourn letting go of that soccer? It became pretty apparent to me after my second year that, you know, I I was living in downtown Brooklyn, going into Manhattan all the time, seeing the big city and what was going on. And, you know, I was supporting myself. I mean, I, I, during school, I was lucky enough that, you know, I had room and board, but I would go and coach tennis, you know, kids tennis. I would work on construction. I worked in a bar and the kind of the bright lights, big city, you know, drew me you know, into wanting to build a career for myself and, you know, and make money, basically. And it became kind of apparent after my second year that, you know, soccer was a means to an end. It becomes very much like a job. You know, you're training, you're, you're traveling, you know, all of those, those things. It, it really is a job and you're studying. And I just realized uh, for me that, you know, in hindsight, I was actually, I should have enjoyed the ride a little bit more but because I was supporting myself and I needed, I had this drive, this internal engine all the time, you know, I kind of put that to bed and realized I needed to, you know, start to, to make money and uh, create a different kind of uh, life for myself. So after, you know, after I graduated, you get a year to work in the U.S. legally. And I, I ended up working for a telecom company. It was a sales job and purely because they were paying more than any other offer that I had received. <laughs> it wasn't anything that I wanted to do. In fact, I actually studied more of an arts degree and wanted to be a copywriter in, in advertising. And so I actually had two internships with ad agencies and was much more on the kind of creative side. And this job was just paying more. So I ended up graduating, moving into the city. Another buddy of mine introduced me to another South African guy, and the two of us moved into this little apartment, and we put up some drywall to make it a two-bedroom <laughs> versus a one-bedroom, and there we were. And pretty much after three months of working at this company, and we were literally selling, you know, DSL, T1, you know, early internet lines to to companies, knocking on doors. So after three months, uh, the guy called me in and he said, I want you to run a team of 15 salespeople. I was like, okay, is there more money in that? <laughs> right? And he's like, sure, there's more money and blah, blah, blah. 
Anyway, long story short is after nine months, I realized that the, the, the clock was ticking for me to stay there legally. And these guys weren't uh, were telling me they were going to sponsor me, but it wasn't coming through. So I ended up going for lunch with a lifelong uh, friend of mine, and he had moved to New York as well and was frustrated with his job. And we decided to quit our jobs and start our first business together. And that's kind of how I got started. How important was that first sales job? I mean, I, when I started my career, I was cold calling. And to this day, I think it's one of the most important skill sets I've ever accumulated in my life. I think that, you know, especially if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you can't, you need to be able to sell, period. Sell yourself, sell your vision, sell, sell your product, whatever it might be, you got to be able to sell. Absolutely. I can tell you something. That job was an unbelievable training, you know, Think of it this way. You're walking around Manhattan in the summer, okay, in a suit and tie <laughs> in July, August. If you've ever been to New York City, you know, at that time, and you're, you're sweating it out and you're literally knocking on doors and people telling you in no uncertain terms, you know, go fuck yourself, get out of here. What are you doing? It's You've got to have a thick skin and you've got to know how, first of all, how to phrase things, very important, and who to talk to. Because often it's not the boss. <laughs> it's not the main guy. You've got to kind of get through the gatekeeper. So that was huge. But for me, I'd kind of always been doing, you know, some sort of sales since I was a, was a kid. And I think that job, as well as working in a restaurant, personally, I give this advice to young people, go work in a restaurant. It is the best sales training you will ever get. So, you know, it certainly was amazing. So, I mean, hearing about your background and the big kind of leaps you've taken, leaving a job to start your own company doesn't sound like a far-fetched idea to you. Talk to me about the early days. I mean, I think it's so easy, and I, I know we've spoken about this before, to glamorize that entrepreneurial journey. But the reality is the fucking grind. It's not glamorous until it is. And there's a lot, a lot of pain and suffering that comes with that beginning part of that process. Absolutely. I mean, so what happened was my, my Gary, my friend and I, we ended up starting this company. Literally, I remember it was December 10th. We had lunch and, you know, I went in the, the next day, quit my job. And, uh, you know, January 5th, we started our first company. And there was, you know, him and myself in his attic in Queens. He was renting a house in Queens, New York. And, you know, it was an eight-year grind. Eventually, you know, we built the company up to around 20 people. And as you say, it's, it's, it's absolutely not glamorous. You know, when you start a company and you get other people to trust in you and trust in your ability to provide for them, it's a huge thing. And, you know, at this stage, 24 years old, it's do or die. You know, really, why we started the company initially was because we just want to go back to South Africa. And this was pre-9-11. So, you know, we were able to create a company and sponsor ourselves. We figured out how to game the system. Right? Well, I was just going to ask you why, why that mattered. That makes sense. Yeah. So the rules were a little bit uh, more lax and, you know, et cetera. But, you know, to your point, it's definitely not glamorous. There, are, there were days where you're sitting there on a Friday afternoon and, uh, you know, I use this analogy to this day. You're sitting there on a Friday afternoon and you have payroll to pay and you're, you know, 30, 35K short, whatever it is, like, what do you do? You've got to get on those phones and you've got to hustle and you've got to, you know, take responsibility and realize that you've got people to pay before, you know, you're anywhere close to paying yourself. And there were many, many days like that. And that 
is really, really where, you know, you separate the kind of men from the boys, right? You've got to stand up and be counted and make it happen. And, you know, we grounded out for many, many years. And it was it was a very, very intense journey, especially for two young guys. And one of the other big learnings from that is we didn't have any mentors at that stage. You know, we didn't have people that you could call up and we had been through it. And today, you know, this is the late 90s. Today, people think, you know, entrepreneurship is so glamorous. You know, I'm going to just, you know, ride ride the wave. You know, it's all about tech crunch and raise money easily. And it's going to be, you know, blue skies and, and rainbows. I think that's Not, changing right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's always corrections and there's always doses of reality. One of the things I want to go back to, because, you know, I, I preach a lot about finding what you're passionate about and following that passion because you can't outwork passion. And just hearing you talk made me think of something. It's like that sentiment comes with the ability to actually have that choice. And hearing you talk about having to take this job or that job, there are situations that require things to be done out of necessity. Right. So, you know, to maybe talk about that because you haven't really spoken about your passion, right? Because like when you're doing the sales, you're like, I didn't really want to do it, but it paid the most. And you had to do it because it paid the rent and all that kind of stuff. What can people learn about that idea of that's great to follow your passion, but there are things that to do out of necessity. I think that's a, that's a great point. I mean, you know, when I think about my, my journey overall, most of it is predicated by pure desire, will, and necessity, not by passion. Passion is uh, the romanticism, you know, and the romantic ideal of, you know, I was so passionate about something and I did X, Y, and Z. To be perfectly honest with you, mine has been driven by sheer necessity. I was a guy who left South Africa with a backpack. I didn't have, you know, a credit card and, you know, money being sent to me every few weeks. It was either do or die. And it was driven, it's been driven sheer by sheer will and the desire to not go backwards. So certainly I've done things that, um, you know, I've been passionate about and I've been fortunate along the way. But a lot of it is purely by by fear, the fear that someone's going to knock on my door and say, sorry, buddy, you've got to go back, <laughs> you know, or... I've never thought about it that way because for me, you know, I've always followed where I'm passionate about, but it's maybe it's a little bit ignorant because the idea that it's it's luxury, you have to have the luxury of that choice. So I'm, I'm, I I love hearing a bit about this, a little bit more about the story. So, you know, you're, you're eight years deep into this, you know, kind of first entrepreneurial venture. Maybe talk about the end of that, you know, that this is still in New York. You live now in Toronto. Maybe just talk about that transition a little bit. Yeah, so it was it was actually interesting because I had uh, met my wife who's from Toronto. And, uh, you know, we got married. We went back to New York. We got married in Toronto. We were still living in New York. And she had graduated um, from her MBA. And it was now post 9-11. And she struggled to find a job. So we made the decision to move to Toronto. And I still had my team and my partner in New York. And I basically came up here and, you know, set up kind of shop, one-man shop um, to continue driving my side of the business, which was mostly sales and BD and strategy. And then my partner moved up here as well about a year later, and we continued to run the business here um, until uh, the end of 2006. And then he was kind of done with the journey. And again, you know, you talk about the glamorization of the stories and the and the journeys. 
he was done. I was too young to recognize or, um, or have the confidence essentially to say, you know what, you go do your thing. I'll take the business and I'll run it from here. You know, it was our baby that we had built up together, right? So we decided to sell the business, which we did. And then I uh, kind of took a step back for a little while and said, okay, what do I really want to do? And at this time, we were living in, in Toronto, like I said. And uh, I was fortunate enough to meet two guys who became my mentors. And uh, I met, you know, Mark Skopinker and, and Tony Davis, who had a venture fund called Brightspark. And they were, you know, successful entrepreneurs. And as I said before, for the first time, I kind of had mentors that I could really bounce ideas off, et cetera. So, yeah, so, you know, after being on this entrepreneurial journey, very young, having an exit that was, you know, a single, um, not, certainly not a home run, but, you know, it gave me a little bit of breathing room for the first time in, in my life. I then went and joined them, which was uh, very, very formative. You've mentioned mentors a few times and, and, and you know how much of a believer I am in, in that mentorship process. Why do you think mentorship is such an important piece of the puzzle? I think it's huge. I think, you know, without people to talk to on a different level, you know, it's uh, especially, uh, you know, obviously when we talk about business, it's using different muscles of your brain. You know, you're not talking to, you know, for example, your your lover about your, your business all the time. Like they can give you different things, right? And I think the ability to to have conversations with with people who, have been through their own struggles, have been through those experiences is really key. You have to have people that you can trust and that you can talk to and that you can share ideas with. So for me, you know, that mentorship is massive. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the other things people don't talk about enough is, is how important, like, like that's like a, a personal life side of the equation where you have someone to talk about experiences and all that kind of stuff and you alluded, you know, to your wife. I know you and I have communicated at length about how important it is to have a stable kind of household and a partner that supports you. You know, I think it's something that people just don't address enough. There's this cliche of behind any good man or a good woman is a good man or woman. But maybe speak to, you know, what that has meant for you in your career and how it has helped shape the path and the confidence and the success. Yeah, I mean, it's quite amazing to me. I think about, you know, where where we started. You know, I met my wife in a bar in New York City one night, <laughs> you know, and uh, I still marvel at the fact that she absolutely trusts me, has confidence in my ability. I'm a guy, I may seem like I'm a huge risk taker, but I'm, you know, you know this, I vacillate and I weigh up a bunch of different options. And then I get to a point where I'm singularly focused and, you know, the fact that she supported me on all of it, uh, all the decision-making that sometimes to the outside world is like, well, what's he doing? Um, she's never wavered is is massive. It's huge. No, I totally agree. Being an entrepreneur is in itself riskier, more uncertain. And I always say that, you know, I can afford that in my life because I have the stability in my personal life, right? You can't have chaos. You can't have chaos everywhere, right? I mean, that's just a recipe for disaster. It's interesting, though. I want to just touch on that point. You know, we talk about like um, entrepreneurship, etc. To me, it's just it's it's you know either you're a leader or you're not, or you have a desire to be master of your own destiny, or or you don't. 
And for me, you know, everybody, this word, you know, entrepreneur, entrepreneur, you know, it's so, it's so glamorized and so it's glorified to the nth degree. And the reality is, is that going back to the origin of, of this podcast, right? The, the DNA, right? I was about to ask you about that, yeah. Okay, so, the DNA. Yeah. So I just think, I, I honestly believe that there's, there's something inside people that is just there that you know, you're driven to to build. You're driven to be master of your own destiny. Maybe it's the the fact that I was a naughty little shit who didn't want to listen to people and wanted to make his own way. But you were born like that, and you say, and and we've had this conversation how how much you see that DNA translate into your own children, like I do as well, and my children. It's something you can't escape, and and I think it's very romantic to think that you can be whatever you want to be, but it's just factually fucking incorrect yeah no there's there's the dna side for sure and then there's the circumstantial like you're born in a certain place you're born into certain circumstances and that either drives you and fuels you in a direction or it doesn't right so there's a balance there for sure but your story cannot be hacked into your children they'll never go through that same experience Thank God, because you you went through it, right? So we will always want better for our children than we had ourselves. And I've asked this to other successful people. It's like, how do you create that work ethic and that passion and that ability to overcome adversity in children that aren't going to have that adversity that you had? Honestly, it's something that I think about every day. <laughs> when, I, when I have the answer, I'll get back to you. <laughs> you know, the, the only thing that I can come up with that I do and I practice is just communication and and not being afraid to share the the truth and your own origin story and hopefully some of that gets implanted in in them and they take pieces that will drive them into their lives but you're 100 percent right you know what what fuels your own growth and your own you know journey is so that they they have a different path to you yeah it is something that i think a lot of successful people have to consider because it's not a mistake that 95% of boxing champions grew up in slums, favelas, whatever it may be. They weren't born into, you know, a, a middle class or upper class household and the struggle helps create weapons. <laughs> Absolutely. It's the same thing. I mean, you use the sports analogy, the the boxing. It's the same thing in Sports. I mean, you see the the top achievers are people who come from a place of disadvantage, and that's what fuels them. I mean, I lived it. <laughs> you know, I was lucky enough to have some natural gifts that allowed me to parlay that into an exit. <laughs> You've got to be the fastest Jew on planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a long time ago, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, so let's talk about, you know, you're, you're, you're now at Bright Spark. I know the story and, and I, I know we don't have too, too long, but, you know, you were working on the portfolio. There was one company that kind of took your interest. You kind of dove head first into it. Let me just talk about that story because it's, it's a really interesting one about a couple of things, about fundraising, about being in Canada versus the U.S. I mean, just tell people about that, that, that experience. Yeah, the short story there is we were incubating a bunch of different companies, one of which was a vacation rental platform with a twist, which uh, was, you know, folks would list their space on the website and people would travel to different... Kind of crazy at the time. Absolutely. People would travel to go and stay in people's apartments, homes, etc. And people looked at us like we were crazy. And 
it was us. Uh, the company was called I Stop Over and a small little company in California called Airbed and Breakfast, which became Airbnb. And uh, you kind of alluded to some of it, but you know, raising money for a consumer play in Canada in 2009 was very diff- difficult. Um, the idea itself, people thought we were absolutely crazy. Everybody used to ask me the first questions, you know, what happens when someone gets murdered, you know? <laughs> and people uh, just didn't really fully understand where things were moving. And what happened is we, we ended up raising a small amount of money. Airbnb had a lot of momentum and raised some money um, in California. And 10 months kind of into the journey when we were building and, you know, we had done quite well on, on some large events, the World Cup, the Olympics, those type of things. They raised 112 million bucks and uh, they were crushing it, basically. And we quickly realized that we better find a, a home for for ourselves and try and create some sort of uh, exit for the investors. And really what it taught me is ultimately you can have great ideas, you can have great product, you know, nothing, nothing beats execution. And once you have momentum and you see someone, you know, have momentum, it is very, very hard to to catch up. But overall, great experience. You know, I was CEO for, you know, the first time. I had no safety net. I was lucky enough at that time, by the way, to have my mentor, Mark, as my chairman of the board who was, you know, with me on the journey. And I can tell you versus the previous a journey, you know, being on your own and grinding it out. This it was again showed me the value of having someone that you could be really open, honest, and have those deep conversations with about the challenges, not just the the celebrations, right? The troughs, in the troughs, uh, you know, it's really important to have someone with you there. I know that ultimately you landed up selling that business after being on a plane for many, many, many months. To, I believe, uh, a Berlin-based company. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, during that time, I know you you got to know the eBay guys because you're trying to sell a company to them. Knowing you the way I know you, the, the next few years are so interesting to me because I just can't see you in a corporate role, you know, based on our relationship. But I want to talk about that. I mean, talk about the experience, but like there must have been some incredible learnings that you have come to realize during that 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 corporate stint, quote unquote. So talk about that transition into the big corp world from basically never being in that world. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I like to joke that I was uh, an accidental, you know, corporate citizen for a while. And, uh, you know, the reality is, is I ended up, you know, being approached by uh, some, some folks at eBay about bringing StubHub to Canada and building out international markets. And yeah, I spent, you know, two and a half years doing that. And it was absolutely an incredible, incredible journey. And it gave me really the ability for the first time in my career to kind of take a pause, take a step back and really observe different behaviors. Because in a big organization that's established like that, you're not grinding for every dollar. You're not, you know, eking it out. You have the luxury to take a step back and be more thoughtful about your approach. You know, certainly learn, you know, how they got to that point, putting in different structures, different, you know, different, you're flexing different muscles because you're not hustling. It's not uh, the same as, you know, starting a company on your own. And the learnings were absolutely incredible. I think it's, 
that bar none was um, incredible for me in that it made me a better a better leader. It made me my thinking much more structured. It exposed me to different areas of a business, a business that large. And uh, yeah, it was just just a, a fantastic, fantastic experience. Ultimately, you know, I'm not built for the corporate world, and you know having kind of set my goals and that's that's another thing you know I, I truly believe in goal setting and visualization i've always done that ever since i was a, a little kid talk about that i want to just when you say visualization i think people don't know how to do that properly can can you conceptualize a little bit more like what does that process look like for you like what is the act of visualization what do you practically do All I know is since I was a little kid, I've always visualized things and have had the ability to kind of take a step back and kind of breathe and not in a, you know, a meditative way or a contrived way. It's just something that I've, I've always done where it's been, you know, I see myself crossing the finish line, breaking the tape. I see myself scoring a goal. I see myself on a plane or I see myself, you know, driving a boat. (laughs) like with different things but i've always visualized kind of the the next steps for me and the 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 way that i want to build is that how you craft your goals is knowing where you want to be and now kind of working backwards yeah absolutely like i can see you know i can't articulate it really well i guess but i do i see myself in different phases and then i go about and i kind of execute on that plan to get there and i think there's different there's different goal setting there's certainly short-term goal setting which is you know in the next six months i want to do x y and z and tying it back to you know the startup journey for me it was you know i wanted to take the business from this dollar amount to that dollar amount and you know once i'd achieved that it was you know what's next and how do i keep intellectually stimulated um, in order to achieve that and really the catalyst there for me was you know the accidental corporate citizen is sitting in a you know a global leaders meeting with 1500 people and you know i'm like who's leading who here right that that's not leadership for me and you know i'm you know i'm a guy i want to have you know deep impact on the people around me and the things that you know that i'm doing and i just you can't have influence the right level of influence unless you're willing to play kind of that corporate game, which requires lots of movement, physical movement to different parts of the world and lots of movement with people. And I think you you know this more than most. I just have a very low tolerance for bullshit. I don't have bullshit relationships with people. You're either my people and we're deep or we're not. So it was time for me to move on. You know, it's interesting. I find that a lot of successful leaders have really, really close friends or not, or not where it's like, there's, there's like acquaintances aren't in the picture. Why do you think that is? I mean, I mean, I think it's, it's obvious that to be a leader, you have to have good interpersonal skills because I'm a big believer that you're only a leader because people choose to follow you, not because you call yourself a leader. And again, I think that's DNA. Do you think that there is that pattern that, that, that you've noticed in good leaders? Honestly, I think the, the main point with, with leadership is the acceptance that not everybody's going to like you. And if you have the conviction to, you know, stay true to your moral compass, there's people who that's going to resonate with because they see the world and they see things the same way that you do. And then there's people who aren't. 
you know, the acquaintances and the the BS, like I think it's also an age thing, to be honest. You know, you kind of grow grow out of that desire to be liked by everybody. And then it's just, you know, those are your people and they get you and you get them. And, you know, that's the way it, it works, I guess. Was there an incident in time where you're sitting in that leadership meeting where you're like, this is fucked. I need, I need to move on. Like, like, was it, that was it that sudden that feeling? Yeah, it was that. And the other thing, which was really interesting is I was working on a transaction. We were, Sabah was going to buy a company in Madrid and I was sitting in this meeting in London the whole day with the two founders of the, the Spanish company. And I was obviously on the eBay side of the table Stubbub. And uh, it was very evident that uh, I was more like the guys on the other side of the table. And the plan was, once the meeting was done, Anthony would take the two guys out for a drink, and then everyone else would come and meet, you know, for dinner, because Anthony is much more like those guys. And I'm sitting there, listening to all of these most inane questions about the business. You know, what do you guys think about this and blah, blah, blah. And ultimately, the end of the conversation came down to a whole speech on why the culture would mesh and why they should join eBay, etc. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the biggest bullshit I've ever heard. All they care about is what's the number. That's what they care about. How much are you going to pay me? Right, they couldn't care about the culture, they couldn't care about any of this crap. And I ended up going out for a drink with these guys, having a great time. We all had dinner, and I got on the plane and I, I came back to Toronto. And I just felt uneasy the entire time. And I was like, I'm on the wrong side of this equation. I'm I'm like them. Everybody knows that. I'm a business builder, and I need to get back to that. And then you did a bit of a a middle ground where you joined a kind of growing. I guess startup at the time, maybe, or just past startup phase. How was that experience, and and, and what and you know what were the lessons that you learned there that maybe you didn't learn from growing it from the ground up, which obviously you learned early in your career, then big corporate, and then this kind of in between. Yeah, that was interesting because you know I literally landed in Toronto from that meeting in London and had an email in my inbox from someone I knew, you know, saying let's have a conversation. I have an interesting opportunity and. You know, I look at that opportunity as kind of a, a, again, an accidental opportunity. It kind of took me off course from what I'm truly passionate about, which is building businesses, you know, when you talk about the ultimate passion. But it was also a very interesting um, inflection point in the company's um, journey because it wasn't truly a startup. It had matured, but they needed um, to build out the technology layer and the marketing and sales layer for more of a um, fintech style company than just, you know, dialing for dollars, um, originating loans, essentially. The company was doing small business loans. It was a great experience. Again, I found myself, you know, a year and a half in achieving the goals we set out for ourselves and then just being bored, you know, just really being bored and saying, you know, why am I jumping on a plane, going to Montreal to talk about X, Y, and Z? And, Things had kind of gone from, you know, that exciting next phase of growth to achieving that to now kind of more mature, you know, big kind of company thinking. And again, I was just uncomfortable with that. I just, it's not where I think I, I can, you know, make the most contribution. So I ended up uh, leaving that company in, uh, in the summer and then, you know, having a conversation with you and Jared. 
You just like my haircut, I think. That's that's what it was. That was what always attracted us. You know, it's interesting though. I'll tell you, I'll tell you the the kind of full circle for me. You know, I realized going through my whole journey and you know, we talked about the passion piece and you know what drives you and all of that fun stuff. I got to a point in my life where I kind of created this own mantra for myself, which is, you know, PPG, you know, people, problem, growth. Like those are the things that I really want to wake up every day and think about. And to me, the people is absolutely who are the people you're spending your time with? Are those your kind of people? Do they have the same moral compass, the same kind of engine, the same fiber? The problem or you're trying to solve, you know, problems that intellectually stimulate you, that are interesting, that challenge you. And then the growth piece, you know, how am I going to grow professionally, personally, you know, because ultimately we only get one kick at the can, right? And, you know, you want to be growing. You alluded to the fact that now what you're doing is what you're truly passionate about. And I guess a couple things on that. I mean, it's nice, I guess, in your career now to have the luxury of choosing to follow your passion versus doing things out of necessity. And for me, it's super obvious that your number one passion is helping leaders lead, right? I mean, I've ne- we've never said it that way, but I-, I know what you love doing and it's helping, you know, a multitude of different businesses benefit from your life experiences that you've had thus far as a, as a real operator and really uh, understanding, you know, not just being a finance guy and, you know, talking on, about spreadsheets, but I've been there, done that in, you know, these are the things I think you should be focused on. Why are you so passionate about what you do? Right. I mean, that, that's, that's probably a good question. You talk about what we're doing and what I'm doing. Maybe for, for those, for those who don't know, maybe just speak a little bit about what we do at Firepower Equity. Yeah. So Firepower Equity, I mean, we buy, you know, businesses that are kind of doing, you know, 1 million to kind of 5 million in EBITDA. And, uh, you know, we, we go in, we, we help them grow. We help them set a foundation for success. But our differentiator is, you know, we're really involved. And to your point, you know, I'm working with a whole bunch of different operators, um, different styles, different personalities in multiple industries. And I think, you know, for me, the reason why I'm so passionate about what I'm doing is because I'm at the stage in my life where I absolutely know who I am. I know what my skill set is. And I know where I need to contribute and where I need help and where I need good partners around the table. And I have that. And that's incredibly liberating because it allows you the freedom to really focus on areas that you're good at. You know, we've had lots of conversations about this. I'm not a finance guy. I don't pretend to be a finance guy. I don't want to be a finance guy. I have two guys around the table that that are the best out there, in my opinion, <laughs> right? Which is liberating because you know that you you have the right team and the right skill set to allow you to ultimately to shine, to do what you do best. And I think, you know, that's the passion for me is really the the opportunity to to you know do this for the next 20, however many years and have fun doing it because um checking off the the PPG, you know, every day. I've got the right people. I'm thinking about the right problems. I like lots of different businesses. I'm completely industry agnostic and I'm growing, you know, just going back to the finance piece, just being around great finance brains um, and people who have different skill sets to me, I'm growing tremendously. I think this is a commonality between our executive team 
that we really don't give a fuck about not being the smartest person in the room in the things that we're not the smartest person in the room about. Like, I don't give a shit. Like, I'm good at, I say this all the time. Like, I'm good at like three, four things. The rest of it, I'm shit at. And I'm totally comfortable with that. And in getting to that point, like you said, you used the word liberating. I totally agree. It is an incredibly liberating feeling. How can younger entrepreneurs or, or anyone really, what's the process to go through to get comfortable with being, I guess, uncomfortable? Because that's, that's how they feel now. Did that take you time? And, and what can you do to kind of expedite that process? Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, absolutely it took me time, but it kind of goes back to the original kind of the origin story in that I just back myself. I always have and always will. And I think a lot of young people, they are not willing to pay the dues. You can't just walk in and be the CEO or be the big man on campus, so to speak. You have to go through it. You have to go through the pain. And, you know, often I work with a lot of young, younger people. You know, we like to joke, I'm the old guy in the office. I don't know how the hell that happened. And I hear these young people and they have this, this angst, you know, they want to, they want to be there, you know, already. There's no substitute for time. You've got to take the time. You've got to go through it. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. Look, I, I, you know, Simon Sinek, who you, you obviously know, talks about the kind of the immediacy need for the you know this new generation you know based on everything's now 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 on the phone and things so i totally agree i think that you're going through the grind like i always say there there is no substitution for experience nothing nothing i think that's one of the reasons that mentorship is so important because you can you can you know leverage their experience without actually having to go through it yourself there's incredible insecurity when you're thrust into a situation where it's do or die you're surviving and one of the biggest lessons for me, you know, when I look back at my, my own journey is you are who you are today. No one cares that you, you know, Anthony from South Africa and your history and all that. No one cares. You're in the big city and you are who you are today and you're in this meeting today. And, you know, what are you going to bring? What are you going to bring right now in this hour, in this half an hour, whatever the time time frame is? And I think as you get more experience, you overcome those insecurities. And again, there's just no substitute for experience. I totally agree. So, so, so Ant, you, you know one of the major reasons I'm doing this podcast is to hopefully help fellow young entrepreneurs, young or old, doesn't matter, uh, entrepreneurs kind of find their path by listening to stories of other successful people. What are the final words you want to leave people with? I mean, is there any kind of words of advice? I know we spoke about the PPG, which is actually great. But, you know, is there anything that, that you think in today's generation they could, they could learn from and, uh, and, and start doing more of to drive a more successful path themselves? Yeah, I mean, you know, who am I to, to give advice? <laughs> you know, the, the way I look at it is everybody has different gifts. Everyone's a different, different person. The most important thing is slow the fuck down. Be patient. Be patient. You know, you, I see it all the time. Guys come in and next minute they, you know, can I be in this meeting? Can I do that? Can I do, like, great. Enthusiasm's awesome, but slow down, observe. You know, we've talked about this a lot. You know, we're extroverts. That's a gift and a curse, <laughs> you know? And the advice I, I often give to people is, as simple as it sounds, you have one mouth and you've got two ears. Shut the fuck up, take a step back, observe. Things will come in due course. Don't be in such a hurry. Listen more. 
Ant, thank you so much for joining me. I, I usually ask people how they could find find you at this point, but I know you'll say, if you can't find me, you can't find me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, if you can't find uh, me, shame on you. Yeah, so I won't even ask you. But thank you so much. And uh, I'm really looking forward to our journey. And uh, at some point, I'm going to get you, uh, when we can be back in, uh, in person together, get you a little bit of, uh, of liquor in you and, and ask about what your, your next visualizations look like. Because I'm curious. That, so. Sounds good, buddy. So thanks very much. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.